All right, good morning, everybody. My name is Kurt. My wife and I, Kelly, have the privilege of kind of providing some leadership to our fifth and sixth grade youth ministry. Um, this is Braden. He's going to pray for me in a second because he's awesome. And uh, there you go, buddy. Hold on a second, though. Um, so my wife, Kelly, and I, we have, we have the privilege of providing some leadership to the fifth and sixth grade kind of youth ministry here. And if you're not familiar with that, we call it 56ers. And it's not really kids ministry. Kids ministry kind of ends at, at, at grade four. And it's not like all on youth group yet, which kind of starts in seventh grade. So it's kind of like this hybrid transition um, that we kind of get to provide some leadership to. And, and we love it. It's been a blessing for our family. And just to make me feel a little bit more comfortable, I pulled one of my fifth graders here going in sixth grade to pray for us this morning. Um, so will you bow your heads and, and join us in prayer, please? Dear Lord, thank you for letting Kurt have the courage to preach today. Let him have the right words to say as he preaches today. Let him be able to share your word to the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You can put that back over there, buddy. Awesome. So before we get started, I want to share a quick story. Um, For those of you that know me, I taught kindergarten four years ago, and I love sharing stories about kindergarten. Two reasons I love that is, one, it's just funny, because five- and six-year-olds, they do ridiculous things. And secondly, it's because when you do something that you feel like, you know, you were incapable of doing or not really able to do, I feel like you learn like a tremendous amount from that. And for me, that was teaching kindergarten. If you told me like, hey, Kurt, you need to go teach a year of kindergarten, I would have been running the opposite way so fast. Um, But the fact that I did it and I feel like I did a pretty good job, like I learned so much from that experience. You know, some people, they will like set out to run a marathon and get that sense of accomplishment. Some people might learn a new musical instrument later in life. You know, for me, it was making, making it through that year of kindergarten. Um, but anyway, how kindergarten kind of works like this, for most of the kids in that class, it is their very first academic kind of experience, right? In Mannheim, they go all day long. It's, it's long, it's tiring, it's, it's pretty rigorous stuff. Like, these kids are, are, are kind of intensely working through learning how to read and to write. Um, and so right from the very beginning, I made a point that no matter what happened, I was going out to recess, okay? Recess was huge for me. That, those 20 minutes after our 90 minutes of reading centers was going to be a break for these kids so they could kind of refuel, but also it was going to be a break for me. The problem is every day we'd go out to recess, and I'm trying to like, you know, just like take 20 minutes of like me time while, while the kids are playing and running around. I'm trying to sit there, but sure enough, all 20 minutes, I have kids just kind of like knocking on my like, hey, Mr. Funk, Mr. Funk, Mr. Funk, I need to tell you something. Okay, what is it? I like the color green. Okay, go play. A couple minutes later, Mr. Funk, Mr. Funk, Mr. Funk, I need to tell you something. My favorite TV show, it's Super Y, and I like it, and there's letters, and I like it. Okay, go play. That's great. So sure enough, all of my 20 minutes was getting eaten up with these, these random stories that unfortunately I didn't really want to hear that much about, okay? And I needed to do something because those 20 minutes, I needed that 20 minutes of time, otherwise I was going to be an ineffective teacher the rest of the day. I needed to be able to catch my breath and kind of recoup. And so I kind of developed a system, don't judge me, but this is kind of how I handled this situation, all right? As soon as I saw a kid approaching, I would take two steps toward that kid. I would say, hey, is that a new shirt? They'd be like, no. I'd be like, high five. I'd give them a high five, and every single time they would run in the opposite direction. I don't know what that was, but like the high five signaled that they were, they were done. And it also, this is funny. Some of you are laughing. Some of you are like, that is not appropriate. That is not okay. Um, 
But the cool thing was it actually helped me to like, you know, if something really serious was happening, they were still going to tell me. Um, but the funniest part of this whole entire situation is like I'm six foot two male. I am not what you picture for your kid's first kindergarten teacher experience. You know, hello, I'm Mr. Funk. I'll be your, your kid's teacher. And most of the time it was like, what? And my other co-teachers, you know, all kind of female, like, they, they fit the mold of, like, the Mary Poppins, like, what you expect of kinder. The looks that they gave me when this process was going on was kind of just like, what? Like, I'm not really sure, should we address this? I don't really understand what's happening right now. I don't, I, I don't really get it. And kind of that whole story to kind of, to tell you this morning that this passage of scripture that we're going to dive into together this passage of scripture, that is always how I've, I've read this passage of scripture. I've probably read this 20 times in my life. And every single time I got it, I got the point that Jesus turned water into wine. But each and every time, it was kind of like, but like, what's the deal here? What's going on? Why, why would this be Jesus' first miracle? I don't really get it. So let's give some background information to this kind of story first. First things first, you have to understand, weddings in this culture, in this time, were a massive deal. They were huge. Okay, they're pretty important right now. You know, we get together, it's a really exciting time. It's like one night long, and in Lancaster County, as soon as the meal's over, most people leave. Okay? But in this time, you're talking about weeks, week or two of celebration, kind of like this nonstop party. It was a symbol of strength and dignity within your community. Okay, this was a huge, a massive deal that we can't really understand. But you have to understand, multiple week-long celebration, all right? It really valued the entire family unit. So it wasn't just about the bride and the groom, but both families. You're talking about bringing honor and respect and dignity to these families. It was definitely one of the greatest moments of your life. Now, secondly, Jesus is involved in this story, right? But he did not reveal himself as the son of God yet. This is important in understanding this. Okay? His public ministry did not really start yet. His mom and his disciples who were along with him, obviously they knew Jesus was important. They, they knew he was special. They were following him. But there was no supernatural sign that had occurred yet. All right? That's why it's known as the first miracle. And basically, a day or two into the celebration, okay? a, ba- a day or two into the celebration, they essentially run out of wine. Now, this is, this is not like one of those... Oh, Like, bummer, we ran out of wine. This is completely embarrassing. This is a total catastrophe in this time frame. Okay, this is a huge deal. You're talking about a massive level of shame that's going to go along with the family, with the bride and groom in their beginning days. So we're going to read this text together. I apologize. I'm going to read it this morning. Pastor Brian's been getting these, these like, amazing readers. Like, last week, whoever read that, it made me feel like less of a man. That guy's voice was amazing. But you're just going to have to... You know, listen to me read these 11 verses this morning. Um, so if you have your Bible, you know, you have your device, you can, pull, you can jump into this because we're going to spend the entire next 25 minutes or so kind of in this passage together, breaking it down verse by verse. Um, verse 1 from John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. 
Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So let's start at verse 11. All right, let's actually start at the end there. All right, read that again really quick. It says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so something significant is obviously happening for our last and closing verse to be, and his disciples believed in him. Something a little bit more than just this changing water into wine, and we're going to dive into what that is. But the question that comes out in this to me, the question that's always led me to be slightly confused is why does Jesus choose to begin his public ministry simply by by keeping this, this celebration, keeping this party going? Like this is his very first miracle. Why does he choose to do it on this specific platform? Um. I meet with some high school kids, so a, a very uh, large strength of our youth ministry here at Mannheim BIC is, is that high school kids will often come back and serve in 5th and 6th grade youth group and in, in our 7th and 8th grade youth group. It's, it's a pretty cool thing because they've had a good experience, and so they want to come back and kind of mentor those kids as well. And so I got about six guys that I have the privilege of, of, of meeting with every other Thursday night from high school. And they're the ones that kind of helped me out in fifth and sixth grade youth ministry. And so I said, guys, we're going we're gonna to be doing some painting. And I want you guys to read this, this passage from John 2. And we're just going to talk about it. And I, I asked them the very same question after I said, okay, so Jesus' first miracle, why on this platform? And here's some of the answers I got. First kid said, well, if he would have raised somebody from the dead right away, everybody would have thought he was crazy. They would have been like, this is too intense, Jesus. I'm out of here. All right. Second one, Jesus needed to start less extreme and kind of build his way up to the awesome miracles. So that, so that kid kind of viewed it as like, kind of like a stepping stone. And the third answer, which is my favorite because it was the most honest, he said, I don't know, I'm 15, can you just tell me please? <laughs> um, I said, well, you're going to be at church on Sunday? No. I said, all right, I'll tell you. Um, so let's jump to verse 9. But in talking with those high school kids, like, that's how I've always approached, approached the passage when I've thought about it. I've never really understood like, the deeper symbolism, the deeper meaning behind these 11 verses. So let's look at verse 9 and 10 now. It says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So here we have this, this master of the feast character, right? That's his job. Talk about a cool job title. I imagine meeting this guy. Hey, I'm Kurt. I teach fifth grade. Well, hello, I'm master of the feast. Like, oh, never mind. I'm master of the teacher, actually. Nice to meet you. Um, but master of the feast, like his job was literally to make the party awesome. That's what his job was. His job was to make this feast, make this celebration like an amazing thing. And so the fact that they're running out of wine, that's going to be a real problem for this guy too. And so Jesus, he really saves the day here, and he indirectly shows everybody that he is the true master of the feast. But he didn't broadcast it to everyone. What does the passage say? It says, some of the servants who had drawn the water knew, and obviously his disciples knew. 
And so what you have out of these verses is that his disciples are the primary audience of what Jesus is kind of going with, this, with in, in this passage. His message here is that he is the one that is ultimately going to bring joy. See, in this passage of Scripture, all right, wine happens to be the missing ingredient to take this experience from shame to joy. Wine is the missing thing that's going to take this family and from, from embarrassment to a celebration. And Jesus happens to step in and fulfill, fulfill that. So this really leads us to our first point of understanding. Jesus came to bring joy. All right, repeat after me. Jesus came to bring joy. Okay, and what we have is this is a micro-level depiction of the macro-level of joy to be found in Christ. I'm going to say that again. The, these 11 verses... It is nothing more than a micro-level depiction of the macro-level of joy to be found in Christ. But let's, let's go further. Like, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper as to how he actually accomplished bringing joy here. Okay? So let's go to verse 6. Verse 6 now says, There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. All right, now I know why Brian asked me to preach. That's like a fifth grade math problem right there. That's exactly what that is. All right, how many, how many gallons of wine in total were there? Um, um, so Old Testament, sorry, that got me majorly off track there. Um, Old Testament Judaism, okay? What you have to understand is these jars that are being talked about in verse 6, you have quite the process here. You have quite the process of regulations, cleansing, purification. They were used for a ceremonial washing process, um, and it really centered around blood sacrifice. Now, the whole point of this was blood sacrifice as a measure of atonement for your sins. That's kind of how you got atonement for your sins. Now, I'm no expert in Old Testament Judaism. They recently took it out of the fifth grade math curriculum at Mannheim. But you need to understand that these jars held a massive significance, a major significance as part of the atonement process when it comes to your sins, when it comes to my sins. We also cannot downplay how absolutely huge of a mistake it was that these people ran out of wine. So Jesus is essentially, what he's doing is he's rescuing these people from an immense amount of public humiliation. He's doing it by using the exact same jars that are supposed to be used for ceremonial washing and atonement for your sins. So he is essentially substituting the water for the wine. Jesus, our Savior, you know, we know a lot about substitution. Like on that cross right there, his his ultimate miracle in life was all about substitution too. It was about substitution for you and me, for our sins. Jesus' death on that cross was all about substitution. Here, he's substituting the water for the wine. He is showing his disciples in these 11 verses, he is showing you and me that he came to take the place of the entire old sacrificial system. That is a huge deal. Like, that has massive implications for his disciples, and that's why in verse 11 it says his disciples believed in him. He is basically in these 11 verses, verses in this very first miracle what he's doing is he is giving his disciples his game plan for how he is going to save the world that takes us to our second point of understanding this morning 
all right? Our second point of understanding is that we are all out of wine. Go ahead and say that. We are all out of wine. All right? Now, obviously, this is a metaphor for the fact that we are all messed up. All right? We are all filled with sin. We all need Jesus to be that substitution on that cross for us. Every single one of us. Because if we don't have that understanding, what it does is it doesn't allow you to fully understand the type of joy that Jesus brings. It doesn't allow you to fully understand the type of joy that Jesus can offer you in your life without having that understanding of the, how you need Jesus to substitute for you. Romans says that we are all short. We all fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And the problem is in church world, all right, if you want to know one of the biggest complaints about non-Christians, non-believers, kind of people who don't go to church, one of the biggest complaints they have about us is that we kind of walk around like pretending that we're like perfect and that we have like this, this standard that we must live up to and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's very standoffish because... Because people see like this, this perfect facade that's, that's not really real. I mean, in church world, we have this tendency to just order sin. Like, okay, like I, I, I lied and I cheated a little bit, but, but, I didn't, but I didn't kill anybody and I'm not addicted to pornography. And, and we all have this list of like, you know, how bad particular sin is. And scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says, hey, basically it's, it's kind of all, it's all the same sin. It all kind of leads to death. No matter what you're going through, you need Jesus as a substitute in your life. Uh, Matt's going to show us a video here in a second, but I just want to give you the quick backstory. Um, it's a two or three minute video, and really what it is, it's, it's the story of a lady who, when her son was 16 years old, um, he, he, he was killed. And it's kind of the story of redemption that takes place between this lady and her son's killer. Um, so take a look at it, and uh, we'll talk briefly about it afterwards. You and I met at Stillwater Prison. I wanted to know if you were in the same mindset of what I remember from court, where I wanted to go over and hurt you but you were not that 16-year-old. You were a grown man. I shared with you about my son. And he became human to me. You know, when I met you, it was like, okay, this guy is real. And then when it was time to go, you broke down and started shedding tears. And the initial thing to do was just try to hold you up as best I can. Just hug you like I would my own mother, you know. After you left the room... I begin to say, I just hugged the man that murdered my son. And I instantly knew that all that anger and the animosity, all the stuff I had in my heart for 12 years for you, I knew it was over, that I had totally forgiven you. As far as receiving forgiveness from you, sometimes I still don't know how to take it because I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. It's something that I'm learning from you. I won't say that I have learned yet because it's still a process that I'm going through. I treat you as I would treat my son. And our relationship is beyond belief. We live next door to one another. Yeah, so you can see what I'm doing. You know, firsthand. Mm -hmm. We actually bump into each other all the time, leaving in and out of the house. And 
You know, our conversations, they come from, boy, how come you ain't called over here to check on me in a couple of days? <laughs> you ain't even asked me if I need my garbage to go out. Uh-huh. I find those things funny because it's a relationship with a mother for real. Well, my natural son is no longer here. I didn't see him graduate. You know, you're going to college. I'll have the opportunity to see you graduate. I didn't see him get married. Hopefully one day I'll be able to experience that with you. Just to hear you say those things and to be in my life in the manner in which you are is my motivation. It motivates me to make sure that I stay on the right path. You still believe in me. And the fact that you can do it despite how much pain I cause you, it's amazing. I know it's not an easy thing, you know, to be able to share our story together, even with us sitting here looking at each other right now. I know it's not an easy thing. So I admire that you can do this. I love you, lady. I love you too, son. All right, so, you know, crazy situation you know you can pull a, a million things out of there but if you if you read the articles kind of about this lady and and you kind of ask her like hey how are you able to do that how are you able to forgive forgive this guy how are you able to have this this relationship with him her answer to that question is i realized i was just as much in need of grace as him i realized i was just as much in need of grace as him See, this woman, she had this deep understanding of how deeply flawed she was, and it took a long time, right? It took 11 years, 12 years before she was able to forgive that guy, but it changed the way that she lived her life. It changed the way she was able to to receive joy. Um, And that leads me to my third point of understanding this morning. Um, Jesus was focused on the cross the entire time. He was focused on the cross the entire time. So let's look at verse 3 and 4 together. It says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You know, kids in the audience, you should try that one sometime. You know, when your parents ask you to, to do the dishes or something like that, you know, you could respond, Woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not my time to do the dishes. You know, it's not going to go over well, is it? Um, and it's kind of weird, like, why is Jesus kind of irritated in this passage? You don't see Jesus like that all throughout Scripture. Um, and then he also mentions that his hour has not yet come. He mentions this phrase several times throughout the book of John. Each time he was referring to his death. And so it leads you to the question, why is Jesus associating wine with his death? That's because, and we mentioned, this, we mentioned this already this morning, it's because in this particular situation, the wine happens to be the missing ingredient to take this experience from shame to a joyous one. See, Jesus Christ has come to this earth to deliver us from shame and in turn give us joy and in turn give us grace. Jesus' very first miracle here on earth is nothing more than a symbolic representation of his final, most glorious miracle on earth, which happens to be his death on the cross. How does Jesus ultimately bring us joy? He ultimately brings us joy by losing all of his. 
He addresses his mother like that because at that particular moment, he knew this was the beginning of his public ministry. It was something that was going to cause him an immense amount of pain, an immense amount of suffering, an immense amount of anguish. He knew this is the moment that it was really all starting in the eyes of the public. So let's review quickly this morning. One, Jesus came to bring joy. Two, we are all out of wine. We're all messed up. We all fall short of the glory of God. And three, Jesus was focused on that cross the entire time. From verse three on, he was focused on his mission. He was focused on the cross. I told you the disciples were the primary audience of this text. And so this really, you have to ask yourself the question, what message does this send to his disciples? What message does this send to, you, to us? What message does it send to you? What message does it send to me? See, this whole, these last 15 minutes of me talking, it's been, it's been very like lower level thinking, right? I'm giving you some knowledge. You comprehend it. Some of you probably already knew all that symbolism. Some of you probably learned some stuff this morning. Either way, like it's just this knowledge level and, and you comprehend something. Like, so what? Like, if you go to church on a Sunday morning, like, just to learn something like that and just to kind of have a deeper understanding of it, like, you could just read the book instead. But what is Jesus telling us that causes us to analyze and to evaluate what is going on in these 11 verses? What is Jesus saying to his disciples that causes us to say, hey, How does this affect the way I live my life? How does this change what I'm doing in my own life? And what this passage does is it tells us to be cross-centered and focused on the cross in everything we do. You see, when we live out lives that are focused on the cross, when we live out lives that are focused on Jesus, it truly changes the way we live. It has to change the way you live. Church, I know Mannheim is a great place. This church is a great place. But the world is so desperate for Jesus. The world is so desperate for Jesus. You know, I teach fifth grade. I'm, I'm an educator. And so all year long, they just swamp you with statistics about, about youth and about children. And so basically, so you can kind of do your job a little bit better. So you understand, you know, what's going on with the kids in your classroom. And most of the time, it's like, yeah, I've heard this before. Yeah, I've heard this before. But the one statistic that always causes me to pause, that always kind of like, it, it makes me cringe because I can't comprehend how the number is so large is, is when they give me statistics on suicide. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in America, the 10th. And to put it into under, kind of understandable numbers, you have 100 suicides each day in our country. 100. And that's not in the alarming statistic. The alarming statistic comes that we have 2,500 suicide attempts every single day. You couple that with depression is just, is, is, is tripling. It's up like 300% from 20 years ago. You see, we live in this culture in which we have so much. We live in such excess that whenever we're kind of feeling down and we don't have joy, we can go to Amazon, we can just buy something real quick. And that gives us this temporary, like, joy fix. Or we can go do something, like, you know, I can go hop in my kayak and and go down a river, and it gives me this temporary joy fix. But the problem, the deep problem, remains the same. 
It's that we don't have this deep understanding that Christ is the one that came to bring joy. Christ is the one that came to substitute himself on that cross for you, for me. And I know these topics are, t- are hard, like suicide and depression stuff. And I'm, I'm not trying to say like, hey, if you just mention Jesus' names, all those problems are going to go away. But the fact remains that we have the ultimate answer as the church. Do we not? We have the ultimate solution to pain. We have the ultimate solution to suffering. And Jesus starts us off in these 11 verses by saying, hey, listen, here's my game plan for saving the world. It's all about me going in your place. See, church, people do not want to hear about Christ. They don't. I know there's exceptions to that, but for the most part, they don't want to be lectured. They don't want to be told how to live. They don't want to be told how to find them peace and joy. That is very ineffective in today's society. Less and less effective each day. What people need is they need to see God's people who are focused on that cross. That's what they need to see. See, Jesus didn't give some great speech in these 11 verses. All he did was one simple act by changing that water into wine. This series, it's called Encounters with King Jesus. You know, we've been using this book. It's genius, called Encounters with Jesus. We just added the word king. Encounters with King Jesus, right? But that's huge because Jesus is king. We live for his kingdom, not for our own. Do you believe Jesus is king? Do you believe that? Do you live that out on a daily basis in your life? See, the biggest problem with our individualistic society is that we grow up thinking and we grow up and we're actually taught that we are king. And what we end up doing is we go out and we run around like a bunch of crazy people working ridiculous hours trying to build this perfect life that we're never going to get. Because I don't know if you've ever looked around, but somebody else always has something that you're going to end up wanting. Never fails. You you just compare that to King Jesus. You compare that to God's kingdom with, with serving others and forgiveness and grace and stories like that woman and that boy. And it's just totally opposite of how we're trained to live. So the question I want you to think about this morning, the question that I want you to really analyze in your own life, in the life of your family, is are you living out your life building your own kingdom? Or are you living out a life that is focused on building the kingdom of King Jesus? I'm going to invite the band to come up. And in closing, and this gets me every single time, the crazy and the ridiculous thing about all of this, right, The crazy and the absolute absurd thing about this whole situation, about Jesus dying on that cross for our sins, the most most ridiculous thing about it is that he dies on the cross and then he goes up into heaven and he basically says, all right, disciples, the ball is now in your court. And so what that does is people... They get their very first encounter with King Jesus by simply interactions with his disciples by simply having interactions with you and by me like what a privilege that he would he would trust us to deliver that message so are you showing people king jesus in the way that you live out your life 
Are you working towards building his kingdom? Or are you caught up kind of in this rat race of trying to build your kingdom here? Let me pray. Um, Lord, thank you for this time this morning. Um, Thank you for these 11 verses. Thank you for your first miracle that really just began your public ministry here on earth, God. Allow us to take these 11 verses and allow us to apply them to our lives, God. Allow us to deeply understand the connections that you want us to take from them, God. And allow us to be open to living out your kingdom, Lord. Whether that involves sacrifice, whether that involves change, whether that involves maybe talking to somebody that we're uncomfortable talking with, Lord. I just pray that we are open to you directing our our lives. And it takes a lot, Lord, but we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for for your son that died on the cross. And we thank you that you left the Holy Spirit to enter our lives and to lead us, Lord. Thank you for this church. Allow us to be unified. Allow us to kind of move as one body, uh, chasing after your, your plan for our life. In your name I pray. Amen.